are listening to FluxPod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This episode features Douglas Wolk, a veteran arts critic. I first came to know his work when he was mainly a music critic in the 90s and the aughts. A very formative influence on me and how I write, and we'll, we'll get into that a bit in the conversation. Douglas also has a new book out called All of the Marvels, in which he... Uh, essentially wrote about extensive critical work on Marvel Comics' body of published work uh, after having read all of it. We'll get into that in in pretty good detail. Uh, A lot of this is basically split between me talking to Douglas about his career as a critic and the what was going on in the uh, in the 90s with music criticism and then we'll go just real deep into the marvel stuff if you only want to hear marvel stuff you, you'll probably just want to fast forward to some point in the middle but uh, i promise uh both parts of these things are we get into them uh pretty deeply um, just a reminder that if you want to hear all the uh, extra episodes of this show, uh, you want to hit up the Flux blog Patreon, patreon.com slash Flux blog. Just finished the Poptober series with Chris Conroy, in which we went through all of, pretty much, <laughs> we just went deep on the album Pop by U2, uh, their 1997 flop record. But uh, we like it a lot and I think we got to very interesting places in talking about that uh, that are probably interesting whether or not you like U2 or that particular record. Uh, also, you know, in the back catalog, I have a Sonic Youth miniseries. I have uh, interviews and stuff with other artists, uh, you know, back in, not necessarily for this. Sometimes I, I put up stuff, you know, interviews I did for other publications. Um, so, you know, we do college, you know, basically what is a college radio broadcast from now and then, usually once a month. And uh, oh, oh, there's also September in which uh, Sean T. Collins and I just went deep on Led Zeppelin. And there's going to be some more of those mini series to come. Let's get into it. This is Douglas Wolk. All right, Douglas, can you tell the audience who you are and what you do? I'm Douglas Wolk. I sit in, alone in an attic in Portland, Oregon, and let the dust fall on me. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a uh, writer and pop culture critic and teacher in Portland, Oregon. I just wrote a book called All of the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told. Yes, and the premise of the book is you have read all of Marvel's published output or like very close to it, you know, you, you have some lines that you kind of intentionally made it. So, you know, for sanity's sake, you didn't read like all the Star Wars stuff, if I recall, and like some of the Westerns, things like that. Yeah, uh, I, I managed to winnow it down. So uh, didn't have to read a whole lot of Conan, didn't what wasn't reading the Star Wars stuff, wasn't reading licensed titles that were not directly related to the Marvel Universe. Uh, wasn't so, so no star comics from the 80s um well a couple of star comics from the 80s there is an issue of top dog that i'm pretty sure was originally supposed to be an issue of peter parker the spectacular spider-man right well i guess you would have the the spectacular spider ham that would be a star comic i believe that's true and i did i did read those because you know why not yeah I mean, well it's, it's technically spider-man it's it exactly anyone can wear the mask as long as it can fit over the snout Yes, uh, we'll we'll get 
to the Marvel stuff. We'll, we'll talk a bit about that. But I think at first I want to talk about your career as a music writer um, in, in some selfish way, because you were a very uh, formative influence on me, like one of the mm-hmm. first uh, music critics that I really clocked and paid attention to specifically when I was a teenager. Uh, I think that was that was I think at first it was when you were at CMJ. Wow. And then, yeah. you know, than all the other places and on the internet. But um, I'm, I'm curious about the, the early days for you and like how you got on the road to becoming an arts critic to begin with. I absolutely stumbled into that completely by accident. I So my background was my college radio station has a culture of whenever a record comes in, we would put a uh, you know, a white sticker on it and everybody would write notes on it. And these notes would turn into longer and longer comments. And then they would turn into conversations with each other. And then they would turn into arguments with each other. And sometimes there would be five or six extra pages of paper that were you know, attached to a record so that everybody could have their say about it. So that, that was I've interesting. seen a version of that at the WFMU library when I was doing uh, stuff there like many, many years ago. Yeah, uh, a little bit like that WFMU, but uh, this was WHRB, and it was it was that was just the culture of the place. Like, state your case, defend your case, argue with your friends, get into fake snits with each other, and then like make it all up to each other. I love the fact that the internet existed in all these ways before <laughs> it formally existed, because what you were describing is basically a message board, but it's on the stickers on the records in a library. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we also had like notebooks that were by the record library and people would just like write long screeds to each other in the notebooks. There was remarkably little bad feeling going on there for all the strong opinions that were being thrown around. Um, and Wait, so what know, would be an example of like a very strong opinion? Like what, like, you know, this record is tremendously underrated and here's like specific reasons why, like something like that. Um. Or, you know, this record is tremendously overrated or uh, this aesthetic is completely corrupt. And, uh, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't even remember what a lot of the fights fights were over. So but, this would uh, be like the late 80s into the early 90s, like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so everybody was was very much uh, feeling feeling their thing. Um, and occasionally, like everybody would just kind of pile on the same way, like, you know, Let's come up with fourteen more ways to describe the how how magnificent uh, Daydream Nation is, or whatever. But uh, and, or people would write you know long historical notes on things like you know, here here is the background on this record that you're not going to get from looking at this record. Is any of this preserved? Uh, not in any kind of public way. I assume <sighs> it is still on the records that are down in the radio station. That would be kind of an amazing coffee table book. Yeah, I suppose it would. It would be. I mean, I I imagine that it's probably a little too heavy on the in jokes to make sense to anybody who is oh. not there. That's sometimes better, though. You know, as a, as a, <laughs> as a you know, as a kind of a, a glimpse into the past, you kind of want the things that are only in the past. Yeah, I mean, from the distance of about you know thirty years, I I'm sure there's some stuff that would be interesting to see again. I'm sur- sure there's some stuff that would make me absolutely cringe to see again. But, you know, so is this kind of the, the on-ramp into uh, CMJ, the College Music Journal? Kind of. Uh, so graduated, moved back home, worked in the comic book store for six months, moved to New York, started temping, 
started hanging out at Rockpool, which was an industry magazine, a music industry magazine that like sent records in the record pool to like rock DJs. Um, started hanging out there because I was friends with a woman who worked there and started just picking up pages and fixing them because it was really badly proofread. And then they said, do you want to write a column? And then they said, do you want to get have a full-time job here? And the day I was supposed to have a full-time job start, they went under. Um, <laughs> Ain't that the way? I, and totally the way. Uh, worked doing a little bit of uh, proofreading and copy editing with uh, Gail O'Hara at Spin. And then a job for a proofreader opened up at CMJ, which incidentally no longer stood for College Music Journal at that point. And has not stood for College Music Journal really at any point since I think about 1990. It is officially just CMJ. It's not an acronym for anything. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. There's, I guess there's other versions of that in the world. I think, I, I think I kind of gleaned that by the time like I had any exposure to it, which must have been starting around like 1994. Yeah. You know, it's, it's KFC, I guess. Uh, but I came in there and they had just started a magazine that was for people at home as opposed to their weekly magazine, which was for the college radio stations and the record companies that dealt with college radio stations. So I was working at the magazine and, you know, was part-time for a couple of weeks and then they were going to hire me full-time. And the day that I was going to start full-time, everybody who was ahead of me in the hierarchy, except for one person, either quit or got fired in the space of a day. And all of a sudden, he was the editor in chief, and I was the managing editor. This is kind of like the Green Lantern Corps. It's like you're Hal Jordan of this thing. Exactly. That like, is. This exactly joke might go happened. over the heads of some people, but that's basically the premise of Green Lantern. No, that's 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 pretty much it. Uh, except I was absolutely paralyzed by fear. Um, but I discovered that I could write very quickly when I had to. So for a while, I was writing a decent sized chunk of that magazine under a whole bunch of pseudonyms, including uh, the names of several members of the Legion of Superheroes. Oh God, tell me at least two of them. Oh, I was, I was definitely rock Crin at least nice. once. Uh, I might've been like uh, Gim Allen a couple of times. I might've been Luornu Durgo a couple of times. Oh, nice. You gotta be, gotta get some women in the mix. Uh, yeah. Were you ever Tenzel Kem or Reap Daggle? Oh, I should I should have been. I think Reap Daggle would have been a little too obvious. <laughs> I I just for the listener, I if you if you just wanted me to, I could just list all of the members of the Legion of Superheroes by their code name and their given names. That's 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 a thing that's been burned into my head since like at the time I was like eleven. Yeah, mine too, pretty much. Um, I, I had actually done that once before at a summer job I had during college. It was like a, a phone polling thing where like we just had to call call up people and like you know poll them about their soft drink consuming habits. But the one perk to it was we could identify ourselves by any any name we wanted. So at one point I was going through consecutively the names of everybody who had signed the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> oh, that's great. Button Gwinnett. That's how I learned that Button Gwinnett is the rarest signature on the Declaration of Independence. It's one of like two known signatures of his. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that was something that could be collected. Apparently. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, the, there are probably other like uh, things that are lost to time. Right. <laughs> I'm sure he had to like sign for things in his regular life, right. like some kind of banknote. Exactly. exactly. Anyway, 
So, so what was what was the, the the culture of I think specifically the indie and college realm of music at that point in time? Like I I have an understanding contextually and like you know from bits and pieces, but what was your experience of of really fully existing in that realm in this the late eighties and into the mid nineties? I mean in in the eighty in the late eighties at least I was just completely in this like punk indie world paying no attention at all to anything going on outside it. Absolutely blinkered, absolutely blinkered, not paying attention. You know, if it was on one of about you know, 15 indie labels I cared about, it was great. And there was this golden moment in New York when uh, Kim's underground was around. Oh yeah. Which was a, record store that was in the basement of a video store in initially the West village. And then uh, there was the other Kim's that was in the East village. Yeah. The, I think there was a, the, at the peak of it, there was maybe four of them. So which one was this one? The one that was on bleaker. Yeah. That was underground. Uh, yeah. It was, it was, yeah. it was literally underground. They would have, you know, like Barbara Manning come and play shows there. That's, and... that's the, that's the first one I went to. I, I have a, a, a pretty strong memory of going there. Um, like when I was in, in high school, uh, I had a, like a weekend classes at Pratt for for a spell of time. Oh wow! And, and I remember uh, the first time I went there, one of the girls who was in the class was like, "Oh, you should go to Kim's. I'll take you there after the thing." Um, yeah, and that girl's name was Luciana. Okay, and that I remember that mainly because I remember her like there was like some kind of like field trip, and she brought in a note that was signed to Luciana's dad. <laughs> and yeah that's one of those things that just kind of stays with you anyway yeah that was a great store uh i, I think the first thing i ever bought there was the fall a-sides cd that's a real good purchase i'm pretty sure i bought that there too yeah. uh the guy who ran it initially was a guy named jeff who went on to be one of the founders of other music but jeff had previously run a cd store in east lansing michigan where i'd grown up and so i'd been buying stuff from Jeff since I was like 14 years old. And wow. I was one, one of the first stores in East Lansing that sold CDs when CDs were the hot new thing. Uh, you may have disappeared. No, no, I'm here. Okay, sorry. I'm here. I was listening. I was listening. <laughs> yeah, I was no. being a host. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> to, so 92 and 93 and 94, I was, you know, running around, buying all the seven-inch singles I could, putting out a bunch of singles, started my own little label, Dark Beloved Cloud, uh, sold a whole bunch of copies, it seemed to me at the time, of the first thing I put out, which was a split single by Sebado and Azalea Snail, uh, had a band with absolutely wonderful songwriter, singer, guitarist, Naomi Hamby, uh, who is still kind of uh, floating around. She she plays with a band called Spouse these days. Um, what, what was your main instrument? Uh, I was mostly playing bass. Okay. Although the best band I was ever in, I played drums in. Huh. Uh, this was Dymaxion. Okay, Dym yeah. I rem Dymaxion. I, there's, there's some of these things I realize I remember because of you. <laughs> <laughs> this is because I've been following for so long. It's like, oh yeah, you did Dark Beloved Cloud for, for at least a decade. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it technically still exists. Um, yeah. I actually put its name on one of the chapbooks that I printed up to go with a new book. Oh, is that the to, thing with the um, 
like the alternate history yes you wrote yeah yeah uh, and actually, there's another chapter which is about locking myself into an apartment in New York for 10 days with a bunch of protein drink, protein drinks and 30 years worth of The Punisher that... Uh, oh, God. Yeah. That's punishing. God. It sure is. Uh, that that one, I just printed up. I'm going to pick it up from the photocopy place tomorrow and take it out on the road next week. To, um, wait, so yeah, Dark Beloved Cloud, indie stuff... Um, playing bass play very very quiet band uh playing drums in a very very weird band that i loved um and working at cmj as a day job which was really interesting because you could see there there was a bunch of money that really 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 wanted this culture's attention and got some of it and then there were like a whole lot of tiny indies who were just kind of doing their thing. And I made a deal with the people who ran CMJ. So the CMJ, the monthly magazine, the consumer magazine came with a CD every issue. Yep. That's, and I think that's the what first got me in the door on those things. There you go. Um, which was a really, you know, it was a clever idea. Like nobody else was doing this in America. And they would sell tracks on it and add space to various labels. And then whatever space they had left over on the CD, they would give me to give away to micro indies. So wait, how long were you doing that? Like when, when did you stop doing that? Uh, I did that from 93. Three to ninety-seven. Uh, yeah, I left. So, okay, so there's there's a lot of songs. I think I probably directly owe to you in that case. Um, it could be. Yeah, yeah, because uh, <laughs> because a lot of times, like my favorite songs would be like in that last like run of like five songs or so. So, right. but yeah, I mean uh, that was they, basically they, like yeah. uh, I mean th- I mean that whole thing was probably the most direct inspiration for what I ended up doing with Flux blog. So, you know, Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I, because that, that had such a huge impact on me. Those, those CMJ CDs and the idea of just like, well, here's a song and you can kind of like run from there, you know? Oh my gosh. Wow. That's really kind of you to say that's, that's lovely to hear. Yeah. I wasn't kidding about you being a formative influence. Douglas. <laughs> Uh, and I, I mean, I should say, like, another thing that was, uh, I think, another really formative thing, and I, um, I think this kind of was implicit in a lot of your writing, but I can't remember where you actually, like, fully stated this idea. It may have actually been in your book, Reading Comics, okay. but the idea that the role of the critic is largely to be both a guide to the reader through the arts, but also someone who helps enhances their experience of it. And I, I've always taken that to heart. Thank you. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's kind of my my deal. <laughs> it's... Yeah, and I I, I feel like uh, it it seems like a, such a no duh idea, but it's not necessarily how a lot of uh, critical writing works. Yeah, and it's also not how a lot of critical writing that I even really like works. But it's it's the thing that that I feel most comfortable doing, and that I'm I'm happiest doing. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And it's, it's, I guess it's like, what do you have to offer? What can you bring to the table? And some people have different things to bring to the table. But 
Yeah. You know, if, if, if you're coming from the perspective of a thoughtful fan, then that's kind of what you have to do. Right. Um, but anyway, so you, as you're as you're saying, this is like the the, the mid '90s of CMJ, and you, you've been given a a, a a a pretty good amount of power in doing that. Yeah, I mean it it was it was fun having that domain because you know this was space on the CD that would otherwise go to waste, and this was just a chance to give a little bit of extra attention to things that I thought were interesting. Um, and that was really fun to do. It was also, it was a really exhausting job. The office was out in Great Neck. I had to commute out there every day. Oh, wow. Long Island. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, there was a lot of work to be done. We couldn't pay writers very well at all. Like really, really, really badly. Uh, for a while when I started there, what we were paying for a review was less than it cost to buy a CD. <laughs> yeah. Like that's not okay. Yeah. Uh, and so I started, but, but yeah, I guess that, but that's, I guess that's basically like a slightly elevated version of you're doing it for exposure, but you know, yeah. I mean, that's how uh, a lot of like these small media things work. I, mean, I think it's actually, if, if a, a younger writer is listening on this, it is actually helpful for them to know that even in times where theoretically there was more money in media, there's still these things still existed. It was ever thus pretty much. Yeah, there was. Yeah, there was not there was not a lot of money filtering down to people like us. Uh, that said, like CMJ was a really nice place to work. The people I was working with were fantastic. Uh, some of them were really excellent writers and Bobby Haber, who was running it, was like a really good person to work for. Uh, he could not pay us a lot of money, but he genuinely listened to us and gave us attention. And, you know, we could speak our minds to him. He would take it under consideration. It, it, like it, that felt really good. Were you influenced at all by the zines culture of that time? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, Chick Factor. I love Chick Factor. Actually, I, it's no secret. I was Clarissa from Chick Factor for years and years. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because it occurs to me that like what you're doing at CMJ was basically like a version of zines that could have the distribution to bring it to the pharmacy where I could get it <laughs> Yeah, in the suburbs of New York as a, as a kid in like 1994. Um because like all that zine stuff was something I was aware of, but I had very minimal access to. So like to this day, I, I like I was saying before, like I, I wish that there could be like a coffee table book of that record library. I wish that you could get like coffee table books or something that just kind of preserved old zines. That would be amazing. I mean, there are zine libraries, but no, it's, it's not the same. It's not really accessible, you uh, know? And a lot of them are, like they were pretty ephemeral. They were things that made sense in their context at their time. Yeah. And, uh, and obviously like lots of like the, the music blogs from the, the two thousands. Now, a lot of those are just lost to the mists of time now too. So like yeah. having, having any archives of these things is kind of a permanent problem. Yeah, really. It really is. Um, one of, I was just thinking a few days ago, uh, 
the Michigan State University Library, uh, where I went a lot as a kid, has an extraordinary comics collection. They just had a person in their special collections division who just got every comic published in America that they possibly could. And so I would go there every weekend. And at one point, I think a little after college, I went back there and said, hey, what's new here? They're like, oh yeah, we just got uh, this big old stack of like old uh, British punk scenes from the late seventies. Is that the thing you would be interested in? It's like, yes, <laughs> yes, it would, yes. Uh, and they just had you know, a giant box full of them, not sorted, not indexed. They weren't really sure what to do with them. They knew they wanted to hold on to them, but they had this like, amazing zines that there must have been 50 copies made of that had somehow made their way to this academic library in Michigan. Yeah. Wow. It just happened to land where it was needed. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that was, that was a real happy experience. That was a very good day. Um, so, so in this era, are there things that you remember like that you did that, you know, you remember fondly or, you know, even just like things that you managed to get on those CDs that you're just very proud of having managed to signal boost them in that era. Oh, I'm, I'm, yes, but I'm also completely foggy on the details. Like I remember you know, <laughs> a spare snare, like managing to get like a spare snare song on, on one of those was great. Um, like Air Miami. And, uh, oh, Air Mi like, it was Airplane Rider, right? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. That was that, one, that yeah. was a huge one to me when I was a teenager. That and that oh, brought me to unrest. That's that's great. But I, but I guess did you, do you largely, how do you feel about your writing? Are you the kind of writer who looks back on stuff and you just want to kill yourself? Or do you feel like, oh, okay, that was pretty good. That was all right. It's a, it's a fascinating mix of like half, like, oh my God, I can't believe I, I, I committed this. I can't believe I, I inflicted this on readers and half like, oh God, I used to be able to write. <laughs> so there, there is, there is very little of like, oh, that was a clever turn of phrase, young Douglas. Um, and not, not, not a little uh, that I'm, I'm completely satisfied with, but I was having fun doing it. Uh, and I started freelancing around this time. I was so, doing, like, what, what were you, like, who did you start writing for from that point? Like once you kind of like really kind of more professionalized your career and I mean, actually before you answer that, like, okay. was there something that you were planning on doing before you fell into this or like, even just like when you were at school, like what was the original plan before you fell into all of this? I didn't have a plan. I, I, I think at one point, uh, like after school, I was going to go to Korea and teach English. 
and thought about that. And then the school I was applying to like went under because <laughs> they always do. And I, I never made a plan B. Uh, I mean, I moved to New York. I was just temping. I was not trying to establish myself in anything. I temped. I started working in a music magazine by accident. Um, yeah. This, I, had, I mean, this is basically a, a version of how things went for me, too. I, w- yeah. I went to art school and then I was like, well, well, huh. and then, you know. But okay, but so once you you kind of move into the phase where like where you're like okay, I guess I'm a writer now. Like, what what was that phase like? So that was Eric Weisbard, who was at Spin, getting in touch with me and saying like, "Do you want to write some reviews for Spin?" And okay, you know that that seems like the big time when you're you know, 23 years old. Um, and so I did a couple things for Spin, and then he left and went to the Village Voice, and he said, do you want to write some things for the Village Voice? And then there was a new editor at Spin who was like, oh, do you want to write some more things for Spin? And Wait, who, who is his successor? Is that, was that Sia Michelle? Uh, might have been Sia Michael, might have been Will Hermes. Okay. I, again, mists of time. I, I, I've been, I, I had Eric on maybe like six or seven months ago. And it was kind of a, 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 what I guess I'm on a gradual process of getting a full understanding of what the hell was going on in the nineties. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anyone knew. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there was no master plan. Uh, but I started freelancing for them and then started doing a little more freelance stuff for, I think the Boston Phoenix. And then at some point I was, getting so much work as a freelancer that I thought maybe I can quit my job at CMJ and just write. And uh, Paul Lucas, who used to do the zine beer frame. And uh, I talked to him about it and he said, okay, here's your advice. Get a column, get two columns, get like five columns, get all the columns you can possibly (laughs) handle because you never have to worry about where your next gig is coming from. Yeah. Good advice. It's very, very good advice. And I did that. And so I was doing, you know, a column in the Boston Phoenix and a semi-regular thing for, I think, I want to say the uh, the LA Times and then something that was in the Phoenix Sun-Times and then the thing in print magazine. Like it was really, it was all over the place, but it was little bits and pieces of stuff that just kind of kept things going. Mm-hmm. What were the concepts for the columns? Um, let's see. The, uh, the print one was just, here's the best designed album cover of the last two months. Okay. And let's talk to the person who designed it or whatever. Um, the Boston Phoenix one was just me going on about whatever music thing I felt like writing about every two weeks. And they just let me do that because they had lots of pages to fill because it was late 90s and alt weeklies were big fat things with lots of pages. Yeah, and most of those pages were advertisements. Yeah, and they needed something to go on the other side of the advertisements. Yeah. Are there things that you remember from this time that you're like, oh, that was good? That like, are, are, like what like what were you proud of like in the moment and then as you went through time? Like what, you know, what I guess like, you know, this was in your mind justifying like, oh, I'm a good writer. <laughs> yeah um there were a couple of tiny little pieces there was a, a a 
piece that actually started life as a talk I gave at the Experience Music Project Conference, uh, which was about very, very, very short songs, like songs that were 15 seconds long or less. And there had been a couple of compilations of extremely short songs that uh, came out. No, it was right. It was the it was the EMP piece later on, right? Um, but that that was really fun to write. Uh, there was a piece about the Nirvana box set that just I felt like okay, this is I'm actually happy with my writing on this as writing. Like I'm I'm pleased with how this is coming out. Um, there was a little piece about uh, how people sing the high note, and I heard it through the grapevine. Oh, I remember you doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, th- that actually had like uh, an awful factual error in the middle of it. So, ooh. Yeah. Yeah, um, it happens. Yeah. Someday I'll go back and fix that. Uh, I think around this time, also, there was an Australian magazine. Co- well, CMJ had a bunch of pages that they needed to fill. And. They said, can you fill it with something other than writing about music? I was like, I can write about comics. Great. Ah, so here's the origin story of that part. So here's the origin story of that part. So I think the first thing I did was about Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol. Oh, wow. That that that, that, that run is so huge to me. That is a, a real, that's another real foundational uh, part of my life. It's spectacular. And it I was, read that, it, like, I mean, I read that when I was like 11, 12, 13. Yeah. And it was going on then. And I wrote about it, and the publicist at DC, Martha Thomas's, read this and said, I'm just going to put you on the mailing list. Nice. And so I started getting like the box every month. It is a box with everything DC published would come to me once a month. Oh my God. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. <laughs> it kind of is. Yeah. That's uh, so definitely saving you at least like $10 a month of stuff that you may have purchased intentionally. It, it, it was, um, <laughs> and you know, I was still going to St. Mark's comics every week. Cause there was a clerk there who, uh, liked me and gave me, you know, an 80% discount, but, uh, St. Mark's comics, by the way, uh, th- that original location closed maybe two years ago, but it just reopened in this place. Uh, oh, called industry city do you have you ever heard of industry city no what's industry city industry city is this big complex on the far outskirts of sunset park in brooklyn it's kind of like on the water um you know i, I live in park slope it's it's you know if, I, if, I, if I, I could walk to it in like 35 40 minutes something like that um but yeah it's like this place where it's kind of like it has like a a food hall it has like a bunch of like very like bougie stores it's mostly an office park it's just this very weird thing it it keeps weird hours um it's just it's it's really one of the most bizarre things that's come up in new york city in a while uh it just has the oddest vibe and for and they opened a new version of saint mark's comics in there i visited it uh maybe like a maybe three weeks after it opened over the summer and it's just kind of like this completely empty comic book store in a completely empty place it is maybe three to four times the size of the original saint mark's comics that's amazing uh, but has largely the same, but probably half the amount of inventory. Huh? Wow. Yeah. That's... It's, it, it's, yeah. But anyway, yeah, it's just a, just a side note into, yes, this place still exists, but now it's weird. 
I mean, it was always weird in its way. Like, but that... it's weird in a very like 2021 way. Now. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I can see that. No, that place managed to hang on on St. Mark's longer than anything else. Anything St. Mark's, else. St. Mark's uh, in the post pandemic period is the most old New York City spot in all of Manhattan because wow. almost everything on that block or two is just closed. Almost all of it is empty. So now there's a whole like broken windows theory in reverse situation happening there. Wow. It's, it is like if you walk through, it really feels like the way New York City fell in the mid 90s or earlier than that. It does not feel like any other part of New York City has in a long time. That's wow. That's amazing. The last oh. time. Well, not the last time, but like one of the most more recent times I've walked through St. Mark's Place. I remember uh, there was just like a garbage truck going down the street and some guy just running out and like begging it to run him over. Jesus. That's the energy of St. Mark's Place in 2021. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm glad I have not experienced that. Uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, <laughs> that's uh, filling people in on the vibes of New York City. I, I, when was the last time you were here? Um, I was there for, well... I was there for a couple of days this summer, but I did not get out of Queens. Okay. Are you, are you coming through for like book tour stuff anytime soon? I am hoping so. Um, I have not planned it yet because I've been planning the California thing. And then I've been doing a lot of press for this book, Matthew. I, <laughs> I, I got to do a radio tour for the first time last week. I, I did not know what these things are. I feel like that's more effective than an actual book tour in some ways. It is. Because a book I mean, tour, that's... you never know if people show up. Yeah. I mean, the book tour is, this was explained to me years ago, like the book tour is not to get people to show up and buy the book. The book tour is to get local press to do something about you, which will make people buy the book sometime or other, whether I, they come to the thing or not. And they probably won't come to the thing, but they might buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, the book it's, industry is, is very, yeah. it's a very weird thing that ages in an interesting way in tandem with the world. Anyway, yeah, I, I, <laughs> let, I, let's get back on course. Okay, uh, right. You, you uh, started writing about comics and, and I, and even just kind of like you were doing some of this at, uh, at CMJ too. Cause I remember like that there just being columns and I think you maybe did some of this for spin too. Cause I, I collect old magazines. So I've, some right. of this is fresh in my mind. I've seen some of this more in the recent past. Yeah. I did a couple things for spin. I did some stuff for the village voice and the voice literary supplement. Uh, and then I got a message from this uh, Australian art magazine called World Art, which said, you, you write about comics. Do you, is there a comics person who might, might be of interest to people in the art collector world? And so I ended up doing a piece about Jim Woodring. Um, and that was really fun. And Jim Woodring is a fascinating guy to talk to, as you might imagine. And also, like, I got to have something printed, like, really pretty in color. And that led to doing some more stuff for them until they, too, went under. But then I had, like, some beautiful color clips that I could send around to places and, and write for them. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm still in New York. I'm still living in Queens. I'm still living fairly hand-to-mouth. But doing a whole lot of freelance stuff, uh, when Blender started... Uh, around 1998 or 1999, I was an editor at Blender for its first five weeks. 
I wow. I said I, I can't take a full time job, but I can fill in till you hire somebody. And they said, We just need you to come in for a week. You know some writers, make some calls. And the week became two weeks, which became three weeks, which became five weeks. And then it was like I I can't I can't do the desk job thing anymore. I wish I could and I can't. I have to be at home and writing stuff. So, so yeah, you're a pure writer. You like, do you have? Sorry, how to put this? Um, so, like editing and managing, you kind of just realize early on, like I don't care for this. I like the editing. I really enjoy editing. Um, I like working with copy to make it better, make it shorter, make it make it work, like bring out what writers can be. Um, the managing stuff, I didn't have a particular gift for. And office I mean, politics. So few writers do. I think yeah. that's the thing. And like, and that being like the, the advancement path for writers is often very silly because it's like, okay, it really is like an extreme Peter principle thing of like, here, what is the thing that you absolutely are terrible at? Like, here's well, that's the, the only way you can advance. That's the only way you can be paid a living wage. Yeah. Um, and that's, that was weird to, to realize like that I'd been doing this for a while and it just like, it was a thing that if I kept doing this, I would have to do. And it was not my strong suit. Um, flash forward a little bit to a few years ago when I started teaching, uh, the both times when I have started teaching at Portland state, it's been on very short notice. Like, the person who has been teaching this class is not going to be able to do do it this term. Term starts in two weeks. Can do the can do the job, and I was like, "All right, here's where I get to figure out if I can teach or not." Uh, and turns out I can, and turns out I enjoy it. Turns out it's a lot more time consuming than I would have guessed, and doesn't pay very well, but it's so much fun. Oh, so uh, what kind of subjects have you been teaching? Are they just largely like writing courses? Uh, so I taught comics writing for a couple terms and for the last couple of years, I've been teaching a comics history class. Okay. Wow. Okay. So you're, you're extremely qualified for that one. It's, it's really fun. I mean, the comics history class was originally taught by Diana Schutz, who there's nobody better qualified than Diana Schutz to teach that class. Yeah. But you're up there. You're, you're in the top percentile. No, I mean, like, she is comics history. Like, <laughs> Yeah, but you know what I'm saying? Like, you're, like, you're not a sham. You're like, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not a sham. I kind of know what I'm doing. Uh, but she is actually auditing my class this term. Uh, oh, my God, is, that must be that, that. That sounds very stressful, Ben. Um, it's great because Diana is great. She is a fantastic person to have around. Endlessly helpful, endlessly interesting, and no matter what historical comics figure I mention, you know, she will raise her hand and have an absolutely fascinating, illuminating story about her personal interactions with that person. A sidebar question. Like yeah. how did Portland, Oregon became, become such a hub for the comics community? Like the, 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 everyone just somehow either ended up there or in one way or another. So oh, like it's such, a, such a huge chunk of the American comics community. Yeah, it's true. Um, the story, that, as I've heard it, is that at some point in the 80s, Mike Richardson, who's the founder of Dark Horse, stopped collecting comics and started collecting cartoonists. <laughs> he set up Dark Horse and he started paying for creators he liked to move there. 
so that they could just be around. Like they were not working on site at Dark Horse, but you know, they would they would just be around. And then they told their friends to move there, and then studios started up. There was a studio that I think was originally Mercury, and then was Periscope Studios, and is now Helioscope Studios, which is now the biggest comic studio in America, apparently. And you know, it's Dylan McConus and Erica Moen and Steve Lieber and Ron Randall and uh, just this 25 wow, yeah. or 30 different artists, you know, Dustin Weaver, um, all of these people. Yeah, shout out to Dustin Weaver. I know Dustin is, uh, is a subscriber to the Patreon. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah, he's amazing. Uh, yeah. Co- Colleen Coover and Paul Tobin and just this astounding range of people who work in comics, but doing very different things. And they mostly don't collaborate. They mostly don't do things as a studio. And post COVID, they have rarely been in the same place at the same time, but it would, it would just be a place where they could go and work all day and be accountable to each other. And if one of them was having you know, a problem, you know, working out how, how layout would work, or needed advice on some technique or something, there would be somebody else in the room who could show them. I mean, it sounds kind of like a version of like what, what Marvel had with the bullpen in the, in the, you know, in the 20th century. And then, you know, like the other kind of like, like Walter Simonson's yeah. uh, studio, who I can't remember yeah. the name of that studio. But you know what I'm saying? Like, like the, the things that yeah. used to be in New York just ended up in Portland, uh, a significantly cheaper city through most of that time. Yes. It, it was, the, you know, Portland is the last affordable city on the West Coast. Um, When uh, you moved to Portland, was this a factor in it or is it just kind of coincidental? A little bit. I knew that there were a bunch of young, interesting comics people who were there. I mostly moved there because when my wife and I got married, we spent six weeks driving around the country. And one of the places we stopped was Portland. And instantly we saw, you know, four people we knew and didn't even know were there. And I think we saw like a fantastic Ted Leo show that night. And um, you just, you just, you just got the vibe basically. Yeah. It just like, okay, this place, this, this place gets us. We get this place. Um, This, this is where we might be headed. And a couple of years later, I, uh, she had been doing a program at the International Center of Photography. I'd been doing a program at Columbia University. And then our programs were over and we're like, let's move to Portland. Yeah. You don't have to live in the expensive city anymore. You don't have to. You can go someplace where, you know, you can rent a lovely two bedroom for $500 a month. You that can't. great. You can't do that anymore. But, <laughs> but, but, but just as I'm curious, like what would be like an average two bedroom in Portland now? Do you happen to know? Uh, you know, I don't know. It more than that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'm really up with. I'm really on top of this right now because I I'm planning to move at the end of December. So oh, wow. I'm starting to look around now. It's like okay, you know, it, I think actually like some of this stuff has actually come down a bit in New York in the recent past because um, they're really still I mean I think it was it was better in like during the height of the pandemic but there's still been like a pretty significant exodus of people out of New York City yeah uh, and to other parts of the country that are now more expensive because of those people but you know not my problem yeah <laughs> uh, so okay so uh, let's kind of shift gears back into 
you becoming a, a, a comics critic and there's not like i mean there are comics critics there's things like the uh what's oh god what is the name of the one publication the comics journal yeah comics journal thank you um like it, it exists but i feel like you have found a career and i think even like i think maybe at some point it was a parallel clear but this seems to be like the the main thrust of your writing career now um in writing about comics and i think you you've become like one of the foremost people in that uh and i think in part because you're you're very good at writing to a very general audience which is not necessarily the comics journal way yeah i'm writing about comics for a general audience is a thing that took a while to do and took a while to get good at um and i fortunately had a bunch of places to try it out and some really good editors. Uh, I got to write about comics for a long time for the New York times book review, which was great. I can't, it, it, yeah. it was, I mean, huge. I imagine it was, that you, you moved the needle quite a bit for a lot of people you wrote about in doing that. I don't, I wouldn't necessarily go that far, but uh, it, it's, uh, it was a really nice thing to get to you at least made their do. publicist very happy and yes probably the parents of those artists <laughs> <laughs> exactly uh some very happy publicists some very happy artists um and i was doing at the same time as i was doing that i was doing a bunch of stuff for publishers weekly too and just wherever i could uh and writing about comics generally did not pay as well as writing about music which is funny to think now yeah that is uh, very but, funny to think about um, um, but it, but it feels like like what you were doing was like you know there's still like a lot more people trying to write about comics i'm sorry about trying to write about music yeah. but like there's not as many people like it's you know is not i mean you're you're really good at this but you, it, it's it's there's less competition to be the best comics critic you know yeah and it, or, it or at a, least for a while maybe maybe that's a little different now but i think even still like uh, uh, you know you're, you're quite on the level that you've attained you now having like two major books about comics i mean it it was a niche it was a thing that i saw that i was doing that not a lot of other people were doing and maybe i thought i can capitalize on being the person who who is a little bit established here and and build on that and try to get better at it and uh that's you know, so my agent is uh sarah lazen met me because i'd been talking at the experience music project uh music conference the pop conference uh, which i did every year for a long time and haven't for the last few years because this book ate my brain uh, but and now it's not now now it's not EMP anymore. It's just the pop conference. But that was a fantastic place. That was a formative place for me because there were so many people looking at pop music from so many different perspectives and going so deep on it. And there were really really distinctive voices there. And that was that was a nudge to like try try harder, Marvel Girl, as they say. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I met Sarah Lazen there and talked to her about, you know, do I want to do uh, some kind of music book? And she said, like, well, you've been writing about comics a lot. Would you want to try to sell a book about comics somehow? And that became reading comics. Um, and that was that was a really interesting experience. And it got received really well. And it 
took me some places I wouldn't otherwise have gotten to. Um, like the I White it, House. Like, yeah, no, <laughs> not quite. <laughs> um, you know, I was still doing a lot of music writing at that point. Uh, and really, like, I kept doing it until I started working on this book, until I started working on all the Marvels. And then as I got into that, I realized, like, no, I'm actually going to have to throw myself into doing this book if I'm going to get it done. So what was the pitch like for this? Like, well, Marvel's doing really well now. It's never been more understood by the culture at large. And I'm going to do the most insane stunt possible and see what happens to me. Yeah. Is that basically it? Kind of. Like, it it was... It was a way to write about a giant body of comics. Um, It was a way to frame it as something that a lot of people could be interested in. Um, You know, I'd love to write a giant book about Judge Dredd. That's a little bit of a harder sell. And also there's somebody who's doing a fantastic looking book about Judge Dredd right now. But that's a whole other thing. Um, I mean, I guess like having read the book now, I I basically read the book in like two days upon getting it. Oh, wow. Uh, It's really good, by the way. The audience, there's a reason. I I don't have Douglas on just because I, I, you know, the book is very, very good. Anyway, um, and I think a lot of what you're doing is kind of moving through not just the history of the company, but the history of, of a lot of different things at once and, and how, you know, that history is reflected in the art. As, you know, obviously, you have, you have a whole chapter on uh, like how, the depictions of the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, but the thing that I kind of uh, really clicked into is what in, in what you were doing was a lot of the chapters are really kind of looking at particular uh, creators or sets of creators and what they're doing in those times. So it's, you know, a lot of these chapters are ultimately, you know, they're, you know, you're, so you're writing about Thor, but that Thor chapter is largely about Walter Simonson, you know, things like that. Yeah. Uh, and I, I really appreciated you looking at like the auteurs within this. I mean, does it kind of set up questions why certain people aren't in it? And I mean, you answer some of them, like why, uh, like, I think the Jim Starlin stuff was already covered in your previous book and, <laughs> yeah. or, or like, you know, like, uh, I don't know if you actually explained why you don't really get deep into Frank Miller and Daredevil, but you know, um, um but, or, uh, but then there's other things where it's like, okay, you know, you, you start to figure out like, well, why, why didn't Douglas write about this thing? And, <laughs> uh, and you, you, you know, and, and you kind of, uh, can come to your own conclusions. Like, I think, uh, I think the the one thing I think especially since you had a whole long chapter about the X-Men that it seemed like you were that you really left Jim Lee to a footnote like a, a major huh. transformative figure who created the most successful comic book in the history of the company. Right. Um, but you know I, I figured that really came down to taste more than anything else. Um no I mean there's there's a lot of stuff that got written and got cut. Hmm. Like a lot. Uh, I, I had to figure out that there must have been like a lot of cul-de-sacs that you just kind of had to close off. Yeah. And so I basically wrote this book twice. Um, and the first time I wrote it, I sweated my way through it, came up with something that I was pretty happy with and finished it. And then it's like, this sucks. This is terrible. So what was the thing that you found that sucked about the first version? Like what, what was the dif- major deficiencies? The, so there were a lot of deficiencies, but the big deficiency was that, <clears throat> excuse me, that it was me talking to the inside of my head. It was not, you know, 
it was not a guide. It was not an outreach. It was not necessarily fun for anybody who wasn't me. And it wasn't you, you were processing, that much. basically. It what? was the part of the pro where you're just like taking in all of this information. Uh, yeah, it was just processing it all. And it came out as mulch. And it just it just didn't work. It, um, like structurally, it was a problem. Prose was a problem. Focus was a problem. Attitude toward the reader was like it just absolutely it failed. And so, so what was kind of the, what were the things that kind of pointed you in the right direction? Like that that already existed in the, in the first version. It was it was really hard. Like I the the uh the way my editor put it was like you have to reconceive the whole thing and so i scrapped like 85 percent of what was there and started over um and that messed me up for a long time uh and finishing like, how long did it take for you to write the first version of the book uh like not even counting like having to read all the stuff no like i was i was kind of reading and writing at the same time the first version but um oh that's that that sounds like it's probably part of the problem yeah yeah uh the first i'm not exactly sure how the time breaks down but i think it was basically like three years to research and write the first version and another two years to write the second version yeah um and a lot of that uh a lot of that last two years was during covid when you know i'm at home all the time and can't think straight and it's maybe 150 words a day and it's just awful um but i realized like okay i've, I've come up with this idea of being the tour guide of showing people the paths that they might want to take and not not making it about like my personal highlights there also has to be kind of a chronological through line because that makes sense for this. There also has to be variety. It also has to be light and fun. And I was not in a light and fun place. And sometimes you got to sweat to make things light and fun. Like, did, okay, did you ever see that movie Topsy Turvy? No, what, what is that? I'm not sure I know what that is. So it is a Mike Lee movie about Gilbert and Sullivan writing the Mikado. Mm, okay, I see where you're going with this. And my favorite parts of it are the ones where they are working out the bits that are just trifling little light as air jokes. And they are working and working and working to make something weightless and fun. Wait, wait, don't actually, isn't there a point in this book where you compare uh, Kirby and Lee to Gilbert and Sullivan? Uh, no, it's, it's actually a oh, quote. Claremont Byrne. Claremont Byrne. It's a quote from John Byrne saying, like, we were like Gilbert and Sullivan. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, like, they, they they fought over what they were doing, like like Gilbert and Sullivan did. Uh, so that's, that's two points of Gilbert and Sullivan reference for this. But just the effort in, like, okay, let's try okay let's try something completely different no let's go back to that thing that we tried before and do that again but differently until you get the thing that is light and playful and fun um and that's hard where, where do you feel like you clicked into it like which chapter were you working on that were like okay this is it this is the vibe i don't i don't know that there was a click um <laughs> i think that it was you know, just gradually working and working and working until 
you know, like you know, like whipping meringue. <laughs> like, Wait, so okay, so so in the book, uh, to, just to get into some of the more specific points in it, yeah. um, like when at, when in the process do you realize, okay, I'm doing basically a whole chapter on Jonathan Hickman. I'm doing like a whole thing on uh, oh, not Secret Empire, Jesus Christ, uh, on Dark. You, yeah. I'm doing a whole thing on Dark Rain. Because I I feel like the Dark Rain thing was very inspired as a way of talking about a particular set of creators in the 2010s, early 2010s. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I'm going to talk about the big Hickman story was there from the beginning. Like that was that was a thing. As as you should, as as one of one of the, the best writers they've ever had. That was yeah. the thing I, I knew going on because I had I had been so impressed by that in, entire thing as it was going on. Um, the Spider Man chapter was more or less there from the beginning. I uh, yeah, I really like the Spider. I, I, it's because I've, I've always been a person who's kind of just like been very Spider Man agnostic and just kind of popping into <laughs> it. You know, I, I feel like I mean I think Spider Man's really built for that that you can just kind yeah. of like get your fill of Spider Man in small doses and yeah. to be like a Spider Man fan seems like even more folly than being an X-Men person like me. <laughs> um, but, you know, but because Spider-Man's not really built to be an ongoing story, but I feel like the way you describe Spider-Man as an ongoing story is very inspired. I, I think you lifted the the, the the basic idea of the major arcs from someone else, but I can't remember who. Do you recall who? Huh. Um, because you credit someone for like some of the framework of it. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, right. Uh, the super mega monkey guy. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's very inspired. Like, like how it, like just like in just the, the bullet points, like what is the, what is the major arc of Spider-Man as, as you kind of describe it in the book? Uh, yeah. Just fig- figuring that out was, that was fun. And like when that, when that kind of clicked in my head, I was like, okay, that's a fun way to talk about this. That's a fun way to look at this. First version of the book did not have an X-Men chapter. Wait, what? That's insane. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it had like I'm a... say that as an X-Men fan. That's like, you know, like one of the most popular things they've ever had. Yeah, no, there there, there was a, a little like five page, like here's some bullet points on X-Men. And God, I can't There's this Chris this. Claremont guy. Don't worry about him. Exactly. Uh, it was, I'm, I'm telling you, Matthew, it was a mess. It was a mess. And... That X-Men chapter got worked and reworked and reworked and had beta readers and beyond beta readers and friends who I sent it to who would send back pages and pages and pages of notes to me. And, and then I'm like, okay, yeah. I mean, I if, you, if you had included me on that, I, I know what I would have been like, come on, what are you doing here about? Yeah, but no, I, uh, I, res- I, I mean, I respect where you landed on this, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, I just uh, my as a as an X-Men person, uh, I don't rate the burn era as being quite as important as a lot of people do. And I, I certainly, huh. uh, on a, especially on a generational level, understand why you do and a lot of people do. But to me, Chris Claremont and the X-Men really click when Paul Smith comes in and and huh. then especially as Claremont becomes more autoristic in his writing, that's to me where it really is. And uh, and also, like, where do I come in? Like, really kind of around Mutant Massacre. So okay. it's so I think we have almost a complete opposite view on what this is, because you yeah. really, as you put it in the book, you, you see it is is kind of ending around 1987, uh, which is to me like where like the real 
one of the major things of, of the franchise really clicks in where it is about a constant evolution of who yeah. are the X-Men, who are even the members of the X-Men. Uh, you know, the, the idea of the X-Men being a set group of people uh, is something that dies around 1986. That's that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it makes, I mean, it's certainly from the perspective of, you know, as a person who's been reading the thing consistently through even the bleakest periods since 1986, right? Like that is like my perspective on it is a thing that is constantly mutating. And then once you get the Jonathan Hickman, it's like, well, do we even need an X-Men? This is, it's just the people. It's just the mutants. It's all of them. It's all of them. Yeah. Hickman doing an entire X-Men series where there is at no point a group called the X-Men is stroke of genius. Yeah. It's the logical conclusion. And, yeah. you know, and then Jerry Dugan now doing an X-Men that where it is a very specific group, but it is an elected group, an yeah. elected group that will be reelected and, sh- and, like, and that group will always change. I think that is also a logical thing, but it's also something where, you know, I, I don't think you ever mentioned this in the thing, but one of the things that I find fascinating about Jonathan Hickman as a person who I've established in this conversation, uh, I really love the Legion of Superheroes. It's my favorite DC Comics thing. Yeah. Like he as is a huge Legion person and is constantly putting Legion things into Marvel. So he basically wrote <laughs> the Avengers as the Legion of Superheroes. <laughs> uh, and he he introduced a lot of Legion-y things into X-Men. It's just oh like, my God, he like did. a lot of his innovations are ultimately, well, well, this is how Keith Giffen would do it. Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, that is absolutely true. That's, that's great. Um, well, okay. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm but yeah, anyway, that, like, that so, but yeah, so you have these chapters that kind of, that uh, in many ways really focus in on the creators as much as the, the characters. So it's really kind of, I, I think, kind of getting at like, wh- what is the beauty of mainstream comics is, you know, the, the combination of the character concept plus, you know, the most inspired creators who managed to work within that framework. Yeah, I mean, the the things that got cut, like there was a giant ass Captain America chapter that uh, ended up just getting cut completely. Did you just, what was the focus on that? Was it like Mark Grunwald? Were you going more into the Brubaker stuff that just kind of got folded into the, uh, the dark rain? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was was maybe both. Um, it was like Captain America as a political comic all the way down. Yeah. Uh, and that, kind of overlapped with what I wanted to do in Dark Rain. It was like Dark Rain is a a more concentrated and more colorful way to do that. And yeah, I think just for, for the listener, like Dark Rain is this kind yes. of year long line wide event that happens that, that happens to come ex- at the same time that Barack Obama comes into office. They basically do a thing that predicts the Trump era where uh, Harry Osborn, the Green Goblin, uh, basically Norman. becomes the head of shield and things are just incredibly bleak in that period of time. All of, you know, to the point where like the Avengers is just a bunch of like bad guys who are masquerading as various Avengers. You know, it's just basically like the most dark and cynical thing. And I remember reading it at the time feeling like, man, this is, this is a weird thing to do in the Obama era. Right. <laughs> we enter, it was, it was completely contrary to the vibes of, that period of time but it's absolutely the vibes of people who just lived through eight years of george bush george w yeah. bush yeah 
and people who were going to live through four years of Donald Trump later on like that. Yeah, but yeah, the degree to which that it predicts that yeah. that, that it's not even just like, you know, OK, there's gonna be, it's really more like the the psychic energy of it, where yeah. it's this, this constant level of like, oh, God, what's the next thing? Oh, God, what is it? How's it going to get worse? Like that energy that was certainly prevalent from like 2017 to 2018, those first two years where it was just especially just like, you know, you just never knew how much worse it could be. Yeah. Uh, and that's yeah, that is very much the vibe of dark rain and so that is an excuse to talk about political stuff and then a little bit got kind of carved out of the captain america thing and put into the the uh thing about presidential politics that is just like one of the little interludes between between big chapters and then i it seemed like the captain america chapter was just gonna be going over the same territory again so I, I feel like one of the beauty things of this book is that, you know, as a reader, you go through like, oh, I want more of all these things you didn't get to. <laughs> so you actually should this book be successful enough to merit a sequel. You have plenty of work to do. <laughs> yeah. You have plenty of ground to cover and, and things that would be commercial. Like the people would be like, oh, yeah, well, I definitely want the Captain America and Daredevil chapters. It was crazy. They were up there to begin with. You know, he Honestly, barely talked about the 90s. The 90s are crazy. Yeah, um, they they are. Oh, my God. There's um, somebody last week uh, said, like, did you actually read all of NFL Super Pro? Like, yes, I read all of NFL Super Pro. And there's a issue of NFL Super Pro that it has a parody of the mythopoetic men's movement of the early 90s. What? I feel like that's traditionally where the craziest things can go. Like yeah. These, it, these like, very random books. I feel like, I mean, I mean, that's a chapter right there. Like what is, what are the absolute weirdest things that you've encountered on this trip? I don't really feel like you account for much of that in the actual book. <laughs> you know, I got to save those for, you know, for, for people talking to me on podcasts, you know, uh, yeah. the official Marvel, no prize book, the, the Fumetti book, the generic comic book. Jesus. Um, <laughs> I, I've got so many. Well, pieces. I, I, I think a thing that I'd be curious about, and you know, we don't really need to go down this road mm. in actual conversation, but just like, like, what is the difference between the weirdest stuff in different eras? Because like a, a, a very weird '90s comic is a very different from a very weird '70s comic, and you know, and like, what would be the weirdest thing published in the past like five years? Huh. I think that's gonna make more sense from a distance i bet yeah it will actually be one of the uh the custom comics one of the things that uh, they publish for corporate clients oh right the, oh god like the north uh, what, what is the name of it? like northam gunthrop or like what is the the major like uh, weapons manufacturer northrop grumman yeah yes that. there you go thank you yeah uh there's there's that thing like the thing that that just disappeared but there's also stuff like did, wait, did you read that that was that was that part of the oh, project yeah. i how was I, how was it uh, in, it's fine. Um, it's it is just like it is self consciously absolutely just a piece of product. Um, I mean, a lot of comics are, but I guess to be like that transparently, it's that. really blatant about it. <laughs> but there are things like you know, around the same time that military drones start showing up in Iron Man comics, there's a license. There's like a special products comic that is advertising like a home drone. And it's an Iron Man comic. It is 
Iron Man oh, using it has this. To be. Like, he's Mr. In, Mr. He's Mr. Industrial Complex. It totally Mr. is. Industrial Complex. Exactly. And so it is, I forget what the, the drone brand is, but it is an Iron Man comic. Like it's an eight page story that is advertising these like toy drones that you can fly in your backyard. Except well, well, you know, Iron Man is using them <laughs> to fight MODOK or whatever. Yeah. One of my favorite little things in the book is is, is pointing out a, a real elegant thing about Jonathan Hickman when he was writing New Avengers is, you know, is mentioning all these characters. These characters are foundational Marvel characters and how they all uh, respond to the same crisis. And, you know, it's and it's very interesting. But then you realize, oh, this is exactly who the characters were conceived to be. Like yeah. he is basically just taken all of these characters to the logical conclusions of who they mm-hmm. are. And, you know, it's I feel like that's something that he does in all of his Marvel work. He's he's exceptionally good at seeing what is there and what are the uh, what what are the, the the most dramatic possible story implications of these things on a grand scale. And, yeah. you know, that, I mean, that's kind of like what he was doing with his Avengers work. But, you know, then you see like how he's worked with X-Men, you know, and I've been writing about that the whole way through and just seeing like, oh, you know, this, especially, you know, as we near the end of that story, like this is the only thing you could have done with Mystique and Destiny. This is the this is what these characters were always meant to be <laughs> like the, the thing yeah. that you have done with this is you you found exactly what made those characters work in Days of Future Past from 1980 or 81 is 80 mm-hmm. and you, you just figured out the, the, the 2019, the 2021 equivalent of that plot. And you don't even realize that you've, that that's what he did until he's nearly done. Yeah. I, I have to wonder, you know, how much that is consciously working everything out and how much that's him just having an intuitive sense from having sucked up all this stuff of, of, how it is and i well i I think that one of the things i find interesting about him especially in that fantastic four and avenger stuff is that he was never a fan of that stuff he just basically did the homework and was like okay i see what's here like he just has a very strong critical mind and but that also is tied to a good sense of drama yeah in in looking at uh one of the tags i had when i was keeping a tumblr like interesting stuff that I'm finding when I was doing all the reading for this was a tag that was something like, and somewhere young Jonathan Hickman was getting ideas. Uh, so there's stuff like you know, the image of the earth's crashing together from his big Avengers and secret Wars story is Again, there. A DC thing. What? <laughs> a DC thing. He's a DC uh, person to the core. Well, it's a DC thing, but that specific way of visualizing it is in the last Doctor Strange story that Steve Ditko drew. Yeah. Like it's like the angles of the planets, everything. Uh, the everything dies speech is its phrasing is straight out of a monologue that Wolverine has in uh, the middle of age of apocalypse. That's another thing. He, he loves Scott Lobdell and that stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that's something that's uh, one of the most interesting things about his X-Men era is that like he just went out of his way to revive a lot of Scott Lobdell specific ideas and characters that he felt like this is good stuff. We like we, we didn't get enough off of this. Um, and, and like, you know, in, in a lot of ways are things I, I really agree with, like I certainly especially the Generation X characters that he, he so loves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah yeah i i think like that's that's an element of his taste that's that's surprising whereas like it's not surprising to be like a really big fan of mid-80s claremont right uh one thing that actually i've been really enjoying about his x-men is how much of a team player he is yeah like how much what's happening in the x books is not him dictating stuff but seems to be just emerging from this group of creators kind of working together and batting ideas around yeah i i feel like just from like hearing him talk and also just observing this and just kind of reasonable conclusions derived from those things it seems like he felt that what he was doing when he was working on things like Avengers of Fantastic Four and then, you know, some of his solo work, uh, well, not solo work. It's the work that he does for Image or right, right. not not Marvel. Because um, he's never solo. He's very pointedly someone who works with artists in very yeah. extremely collaborative ways and, yeah, and yeah. more thoughtful ways, I think, than a lot of other comic writers do. But anyway, the, uh, I think that... He, he's described a lot of work he's done in the past as, as being a very selfish writer. And I think that he very consciously course corrected against what he viewed as some of his worst impulses. Huh? It, he seen like this in everything I've ever, you know, in hearing him do interviews or reading him doing interviews. He, he seems like a person who is extremely aware of his flaws and is very, invested in fixing them like he does not find he does not find his flaws to be charming or useful like maybe maybe useful in, in pragmatic senses but right. um but you see like how he presents villainy in his work and they're ultimately what you can kind of glean as his own worst impulses of hubris and overreach huh like that's consistently yeah. the thing that he finds most contemptible in people in, in his writing that makes a lot of sense yeah like it's 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 really interesting to kind of see how a lot of i think i think writers in general but i think comic writers because uh in superhero writers because they're dealing in is in stories that are about morality you really right. get a sense of what uh they find contemptible in mm -hmm. either themselves or others yeah and, and, and so just with that observation, like what are things that you kind of witnessed and seeing like pretty much like large quantity, like I mean, large portions of individual creators, bodies of work. Like what were weird hangups that particular people had in terms <laughs> of like their moral judgment? Interesting. Wow. Um, that is a fantastically good question. And it is one I cannot answer off the top of my head. <laughs> like maybe if I threw particular creators at you, you could tell me like, yeah. what would it be for John Byrne, for example? What's what does John like, Byrne like? Yeah. Uh, wow. I think maybe the answer to John Byrne is like, well, you clearly the worst thing you can do is go against Kirby. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yet, you know, he he. He's revising stuff all the time, but he's always revising stuff in service to Kirby or in service to, you know, pepping up Kirby or pepping up Ditko. Yeah, he's so interesting to me. And like in, in, in the recent past, I think like one of the things your book triggered for me is like, uh, is that interest in burn? I recently got the, the first omnibus of his Fantastic Four because it's something I've been meaning to like really read 
for ages because right. I mean I liked Fantastic Four and I like John Byrne yeah. but like those books were it was just, it was just tricky to get like I think another thing was like I would really like to read all of the the Walter Th- Simonson Thor which I, I've never really read before but oh wow it's not tremendously accessible at the moment especially not in the coloring as as you right. you point out I would like the original coloring so I think I'm yes. holding up for an epic collection series right. that anyway the the but yeah the thing you really see in John Byrne like once he is kind of like in the full auteur mode where he's not necessarily, you know, you know, the artist of Chris Claremont or the artist of someone else where he's fully a writer artist is that he really becomes like so consumed in being a fan with power. And that so much of his body of work is being a fan with power. And you kind of actually kind of, you can kind of parallel that with someone like Jonathan Hickman, who a lot of his career is being that fan with power, but they have completely different investment levels. Like Hickman sees these things very critically, whereas Byrne can only see these things through the lens of his personal feelings of nostalgia. Have you seen the the X-Men stuff he's been doing for the past few years? I have. It's very interesting to see someone yeah. do fan fiction of themselves. Yes, it really is. And that's exactly so, yeah, what it so is. So basically yeah. what he's doing, he's um, drawing his own X-Men stuff that he's not releasing for obvious reasons because he doesn't work for Marvel Comics. But they're just like if he was just making random X-Men comics that he would have made in like 1979. And he's been doing this series of it. There's, you know, 20 odd issues of it now. And he just, you know, puts them up for fun on his own personal site. Like, here's here's my X-Men fanfic. Yeah. And it's funny because like Chris Claremont has done similar things, but has been paid for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but I feel like uh, Byrne is more successful in doing these things uh, because I feel like Claremont he, never loses the the urge to push himself into further into into new territory. Like his feeling, like I mean, this is the the way they're diametrically opposite people, right. and why they could not continue to work together after a certain right. point, is that Claremont. I think you kind of actually say this in the book in some way. Is that Claremont sees the beauty of this as something that's constantly changing, and he sees that the beauty of Marvel Comics was in the early phase where it's constantly morphing and mutating, and it just never stops mutating where burn really kind of clicks more into it should always be the same. Yeah. And the beauty of the early Marvel comics is that they were like this. Yes. And they, yeah. they should always remain. And, you know, obviously the burns of the world. I mean, I guess like the, you know, the real evolution is kind of like both of those two poles moving against each other. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, cause they do evolve. But there is always that push towards we must bring things back to the iconic state. Mm-hmm. And maybe the iconic state thing means different things at different times. But it is the, that that ultimately it is pushed that that burn pull towards the traditionalism. And, you know, being different ages means you have different different traditionalisms. I think for certain people, traditionalism, this means bringing things back to John Byrne. Right. Uh, I mean, obviously, some... there's, 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 like, as a person who has read all of the X Men stuff, or like the vast majority of it, continuously for a very long time, I guess, like nearly yeah. forty, like no, no, not like thirty plus years, yeah. um, since I was a very small child. Um, I feel like the worst periods are the times where they're trying so hard to bring it back to 
a, a Claremont Byrne space. I think maybe that's part of why in some way I resent the Claremont Byrne era. Right. Because to me, it represents, oh, God, can, why are we doing this this song again? Right. Uh, whereas the, I think that the better phases like mutate it, you know, into a new thing. Yeah. I mean, one of the great beauties of the current X-Men is there is no way it's ever going to go back to being a school for superhero story. Yeah. And if you do, it has to be within the framework of Krakoa. So, okay, this for, for the, this is for the benefit of, of yes. listeners who have no idea what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. When Jonathan Hickman uh, restarted the X-Men and you really can just come in on his thing, absolutely cold. And it's a whole new thing. As long as you, I mean, all it really asks of you is like, do you know who Wolverine and professor X and Magneto are and Cyclops and Jean Grey? Well, you're good to go. You know, have you ever heard of apocalypse? You're good. No, it even um, explains that stuff. Like yeah. it explains it very quickly and on the fly, but it explains it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it, it's, 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 it's actually kind of amazing how few like true starting points Marvel comics offers, but that's really one of them. Um, and it's, it's very deliberately made to be this way while completely transforming the thing in many fundamental ways. Now the, but the, the, but the, the, the premise now of X-Men is that the mutants have formed their own nation and are now, you know, and, and once they have created the nation, it is the preservation project of, of protecting mutants and advancing mutants really means that it must expand beyond just Earth. So that's the that's the long term story that's being done, but the, the important thing is that all the mutants live together. There is a government that is comprised of good guys and bad guys, and you know a lot of the tensions of the stories is, is like how these people have to now live together, as as a and in addition to having like these outside threats. Yeah, uh, the fascinating thing about House of X, Powers of X, which is the the. Uh, <clears throat> for listeners at home, the sequence that sets off this long story. Yeah. Which you can get as one book. Which you can get as one book. Is it is a book that is designed for people who have never picked up an X-Men book before, or who have been reading X-Men for 40 years straight, or who read X-Men for five years or so, 25 years ago, and then have not read it since. Yeah. And it, and it works it, it for all, all of those people equally. It serves all those people. It has stuff that is a pleasure for all of those people. Uh, it is stuff that is like a little gift for all of those people. And yeah. it's a, and, 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 all, and doing all of those things while having a tone that is completely distinct unto itself. Yeah. Uh, it is, this is our totally new direction, which is also scrupulously faithful to everything that has come before that before it, but you don't need to know that. It's a tremendous feat that he pulled off yeah. in doing this. And, you know, and he did it with, uh, and I think like uh, it's really worth mentioning like how important Pepe Larraz and Arby Silva oh my God, were yeah. in, in establishing the new visuals of all of this. I mean, one of the crucial parts of this is that, is that the, the mutants live on a, a mutant island, but all of their technology is based in flowers and, you know, and, and vegetation and all of that is in direct contrast with their enemies who are all uh, machines, basically. Yeah. 
Um, so you have like this real contrast of these two things, something that has really all kind of always been there. Uh, the flowers, not so much, but it's crazy the degree to which X-Men is now something that is based around flowers. Yes. Uh, when, when the uh, first issues of Hox Pox came out, uh, the promotion item was a packet of flower seeds. Yes. I remember trying to get those and I couldn't. <laughs> I very badly wanted them. Uh, I've still got a packet of them sitting around here someplace. A lucky man. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, the, I, I've written pretty extensively about this stuff. Uh, just to plug my own house of X.org. Uh, and I wrote all of that stuff, uh, especially the, the house of uh, house of X powers of 10 stuff uh, for people who did not have a huge background. I wrote it for a general audience. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I love that stuff so much. It, it uh, there, there's a certain heartbreak in knowing that Hickman's uh, story or the story as it is for now is coming to an end. But sometimes it's, I, when I feel like he's 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 ending it fairly well. We're we're still two issues out from the ending, but um, you know it, it looks good for the the people that he has that he's kind of passing it on to, like uh, Al Ewing and Jerry Dugan and. Benjamin can we Percy, just like rant Nita, for a minute Ayala. like they're, 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 these are very talented people who have already been doing very good things can can we just go on for a minute in, in praise of al ewing yeah see al ewing see like i was thinking actually i had a i had a conversation about al ewing and i realized like the degree to which al ewing is someone who exists almost like to please you as a person who has read everything so you know all of the things little things that he's kind of winking at or, or, or pulling from while doing his own thing he he's he's and also the degree to which that he is a person who at some point in his life was like well i should be the new steve Englehart slash jim starlin because who else is gonna do it yeah and he's he's so good at such a wide variety of stories and he is somebody who like hickman is fantastic at figuring out like what are the essential things about every character he writes and sometimes they're well-known characters and sometimes they're incredibly minor characters he thrives in the minor characters he thrives in the minor characters like uh, you know so i mean he so he, the thing that he's most famous for at marvel comics is he is, he just completed this very ambitious run on the hulk the uh, book called the immortal hulk and I, I i very highly recommend that especially as a person who's never really liked hulk very much yeah um but you know, so the, the thing he writes in the X-Men is a book called Sword, uh, which is, you know, the, it might be familiar to people who've seen the Scarlet Witch series recently. They introduced that into the MCU. But it's very different in Marvel, especially very different in the post-Hickman thing, where it's basically like the mutant uh, space program. But, you know, as of like the sixth issue of that book, it, it becomes basically Storm and Friends. So, like, you know, he's largely writing Storm as the main character of his book now, which is great. But he's very good at writing, like, a major character like Storm or Hulk. But I feel like he really thrives in absolute rando characters. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you ever read his Contest of Champions series from 2015. I have not. I've been up on his, like, his more recent work, like his Guardians of the Galaxy, for example. So Contest of Champions is a comic based on the mobile game based on the comic. Yes. Um, as, as as you do in, in, in these things 
it has really no right to be any good at all. And it's wonderful. And its central character is Outlaw, the British Punisher. <laughs> I've, I've, I've legitimately never heard of this character. Yeah. No, no, I've, I've heard, of, heard of most of them at this point. Like, like the British, the British Punisher. He wait. Appeared... What makes a British Punisher a British Punisher? Besides, I mean, like, what is uniquely British about a British Punisher? Uh, he's got. Does a heavy... he use a gun? Uh, what? No, is he, he a knife he... guy. Nope. Uh, he uses a gun. He he has a heavy East End accent. Um, he's the British. He he appeared in a uh, Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning story story in the Punisher called Euro hit back in the, back in the mid nineties. Wow. So this is a deep, deep, deep cut. So this is something that he probably read when he was 17 and then uh, just ran with it. Very possibly. And contest of champions is about the British Punisher coming to embrace (laughs) nonviolence. That's great. And is also a, like somebody puts all the characters in the arena and has them battle it out for 10 issues story. But Whoa. that's, Wait, that's so. This, as a person who's read a lot more Al Ewing than I am, like, is is there something that you would say, like, kind of, kind of answering the question I was saying before, like, what what would you say are like the major themes of of what he writes? Oh man, um, like, what, what, like, what, what are the conflicts that he, he he kind of focuses on? It seems like he does. He he he's very interested in kind of like psychological things of of dealing with trauma, like that comes up in X amount of his work. Not yeah, that's true, and that it. That definitely comes up in some of his Judge Dredd stories. Like his Judge Dredd stuff is like, okay, does Dredd have PTSD? Is Dredd <laughs> depressed? Yes. Is this somebody who has a mask and a gun and goes around being a state state sanctioned executioner who has actually seen so much horrible stuff that he's just completely cracked and rotted on the inside? Yeah, probably. It seems like a lot of good superhero writing comes from a, a thoughtful person being like, well, what would compel a person to be like this? Yeah. I and mean, the other thing about Al Ewing is that he's fantastically funny when he wants to be. He wrote uh, this British series called Zombo, which is about an extremely polite zombie. Uh, the, first co- <laughs> the first collection is called Can I Eat You, Please? That's a great um, concept, yeah. And... That's just just ripping holes in everything from, you know, the Situationist International's affiliation with punk to uh, the Fantastic Four. Uh, a thing, because I mentioned I, I had a conversation about Al Ewing that kind of came up like either yesterday or today. I can't remember now because time's mm-hmm. weird. Um, a, a thing I, I realized about him is like, he doesn't seem like a person who would even want to write for anything besides comics he's he's just such a comics person he's written he's, some novels. He's so in love with the medium that it just seems yeah. like the, a lot of what he does is in some ways about being so in love with it yeah and uh, he has written some prose novels um which i have not yet read not yet read but i should read at some point but yeah he's fantastically good at writing ongoing characters in a shared universe. He's fantastically good at working with artists to bring out their strengths, which I feel like that that's a very common thread for anyone who's good at writing for comics. Yeah. Like you, you can really tell when, when, when writers are like, Oh, whatever, who cares? Yeah. And that is what we're the... trying to exert too much control. That's one of the things that Bendis has been doing since the beginning of his career. Like, 
he knows exactly who he's writing for and how to just let them shine. Because when they shine, he shines. I feel like especially as he ben, Brian Bendis has worked through his career, he becomes a person who mostly sees his role as a person who gets artist jobs. Right. And, like, and then, you know, he does the thing where he types out a script. Right. Right. Like, a lot of, I mean, it's like uh, the, the good and bad thing about him, especially as he kind of moves into his later parts of his career like you really get the sense that he does a lot of scripts are like, Hey man, just have fun with it. Just go have a couple, couple big fight scenes, whatever you want to do, just do it. You know, it's like, he, he, he seems like a person who seeds almost like too much control in that sense where, <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, just to go back to Hickman over and over again, a beauty of Hickman is I feel like he sees the, what an artist can do, but no one asks them to do. So he figures out, well, what is the coolest thing this person could probably pull off? And that's that's where and that's how you get, you know, Pepe Larraz coming in as a very good artist who's kind of like a Stuart Eminem type to on the other side of uh, House of X being probably the best artist working at Marvel Comics. Yeah. And when I when I saw Pepe Larraz's stuff initially, I thought like, OK, he, he's you know, another kind of slick house style kind of person. And. Actually, what what brought me around to him was seeing some of the things that he was doing on Twitter, where he was explaining how he was making every single panel in those stories work psychologically, like yeah. getting into the heads He's of the characters. So thoughtful, and he has is, yeah. such inc- he has such incredible control as an artist. But it's also like not. He, I think that a lot of what makes him very exciting to me is that. His line work, the way he draws, seems old. It seems like it's rooted in the way that Leonardo da Vinci would draw. It's like he he has like this kind of uh, classicism in his the way he he draws and like and the way he looks to influences that are so incredibly far away from superhero comics. Yes. Or, but so that when he comes to a thing that is so purely of superhero comics, I think a really perfect example is how he draws destiny, uh, who is created by John Byrne, who is so purely of comics, right? But like seeing that design where so destiny has like this, uh, featureless golden mask. She's a blind woman, does not need to see. So there's, you don't, you never see her eyes. Um, but you know, seeing that is this ominous sculptural thing. And I, I remember him pointing out that he, on Instagram, pointing out uh, a specific thing that he was reaching towards. I cannot remember what it was. It was a Giacometti but, sculpture, right? I think it was, yeah. yeah. But like the way that he kind of connects these things, and also like the the very fact that you are relaunching the x-men to be so much about vegetation this yeah. person who is a absolute genius of drawing vegetation especially like a, a kind of otherworldly sort of vegetation like you you could not have found a more perfect artist to do the thing that he was asked to do yeah absolutely yeah and i think like a lot of the success of that especially going forward it, it really is that he and RB Silva created this template for these people to work with as design. I think that the beauty of RB Silva who did the powers of 10 is that he, I think brought in a lot of really good ideas from video games. Yeah, I guess he, uh, 
I can see that, but, but draw that out more. I want to I hear what you have to say. Um, this is actually something my friend Benjamin pointed out like to me when this was still running, uh, originally running, uh, that it's very environmental. And if you think about all of the things that Hickman has done through the, the major set pieces of what he's done, specifically in X-Men, in House of Ten, in Powers of Ten, uh, in Ten of Swords, it's so focused on creating like these very distinctive environments. Yeah. And I think, especially if you look at 10 of swords, 10 of swords is something that would, it would take very little to make that a video game. That's true. <laughs> like the whole narrative of it is basically a video game uh, where, where you set up all these duels and stuff like that uh, within these very distinct environments. But uh, and all, all these environments, or the vast majority of them, were designed by Pepe Larraz, who is who has this real brilliance for design, and especially focused on environments. And one of the weaknesses of a lot of comics, even very good ones, is that a lot of artists hate drawing backgrounds. Yeah. Not Pepe Larraz; he absolutely <laughs> thrives in drawing a background. Uh, you know, so you know, I think that when you look at a, because there's so many X Men comics that are published all the time, and in all these various spinoffs like you see uh where these designs have leveled up some artists but then you see other artists who absolutely struggle to draw them yeah or or, or do not effectively sell like how incredibly exotic and beautiful these things ought to be i imagine it takes a long time to draw that stuff yes but yeah but it's funny because you can see you have this thing that's kind of like equivalent to special effects in movies where you can be like okay they had crazy special like the budget for this must have been insane and that's your pepe Larraz drawings yeah. and then I, i'm not even i'm not going to throw anyone under the bus but there's other artists who are working within the same stuff we're like oh this is they didn't have the budget to render all of the stuff in this one. <laughs> yeah yeah i can totally see that uh, also, uh, like, let, 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 let's get off this and just okay. kind of uh, move towards an ending here. Okay. Um, as you kind of like, you, now that you've done this, this this huge thing on, on this mm -hmm. massive body of work, and you know, obviously sets you up to do other things, remarking on this because the sheer volume of things that you've processed. Uh, as a person who has written about music, who's written about comics, like where would you like to go next as a cultural critic? Huh. Um, I kind of want to go someplace completely different next. And I might do a comics related thing, but I have a feeling that I'm like, I don't have any specific plan for the next thing I'm going to do. I would love to do something that has almost nothing to do with comics or something that is comics. I've gotten to write comics a little bit. I love doing that. I love collaborating with an artist. It is one of the most fun things I've ever gotten to do. I would love to do more of that. That's that that is a thing that I think about a lot. Um, there's stuff that I'm interested in that is not even so much media or art at all. And thinking, you know, how do I how do I approach that? Uh, I'm interested in aesthetics more broadly like what what makes arts of any kind work what makes them work as communication between a person making a thing and a person receiving a thing uh which is 
it's a vague question and yeah. it's a big question. Towards, but towards a unified explanation of art. But yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, that that seems a little ambitious, but it's also you know a thing that a thing that I keep trying to look at, and then it's too bright and I have to look away again. Do you feel like maybe an answer to that or a solution to that is going into something where you have absolutely no background whatsoever? So, you know, obviously there's all sorts of art, but like, or something that's like a new kind of art, like how would you like describe if, you know, the art of TikTok? Yeah. Um, or like, like I, cause I think that's, that's that same as a person who is really kind of internalized and under a lot of these understandings of, of these things to, it seems like the most interesting thing might be to just be thrown as a stranger in a strange land. That's a really good thought. I like that thought a lot. Mm. but yeah uh yeah I, i'm looking forward to to where where you go with this because it seems like you, you are kind of at a crossroads now i totally am um and i mean the promotional part of the crossroads but beyond that like i i don't know what's gonna happen next and i'm gonna have to figure it out at some point yeah i mean people can uh how can people get in touch with you and and send requests or... <laughs> <laughs> requests yeah uh douglaswolk.com is finally up and running um, I'm going to be reviving my, uh, temporarily dormant podcast, the voice of Latveria in a few weeks, once I'm not, you know, on, on the microphone, like 12 hours a, a, a day. podcast about Dr. Doom, a podcast that is nominally a propaganda cold war era, uh, shortwave radio broadcast, uh, from the fictional Eastern European state that Dr. Doom runs and more genuinely about Dr. Doom and more genuinely about really whatever my guests feel like talking about. <laughs> yes i i've heard a, a fair number of these episodes and like yeah it's just dr doom is an interesting uh thing to bounce off of yeah he's he's turned up in so many different contexts and so many different kinds of stories that he's he's fun as a way to go to a whole bunch of different parts of mainstream comics and then a bunch of a whole bunch of other places too yeah, and I think Doctor Doom, like even in the the broadest sense, is just a an interesting thing to this on the topic of ego. Yes. Yeah, uh, for somebody who struggles with ego like I do, uh, he's he's an interesting interesting yes. figure to contemplate. The absolute hubris of Douglas Wolk, the man yeah. who wrote about all of all of the Marvels, all of them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Douglas. This is thank this you. This is a real treat. This is a pleasure. Um, 